0: Well, we have made it to Act 4 of the Book of Acts, and in Acts chapter 13, we are going to turn the page. We've gone and seen the gospel go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, and then remember that part about the uttermost parts of the earth? We are there in Acts chapter 13, so we're going to get there and talk about what that means and what the church should look like and where that all comes from as we start embarking on Paul's missionary journeys, plus a little bit of coronavirus update and my thoughts concerning the crisis up to this point. Welcome to your favorite night of the week. This is The Deep End. Happy fifth week of quarantine to you all. And the only benefit that I can see so far from this whole crisis is that more of you have been logging on to our online services and to the deep end. So welcome to you, those of you who have been forced to stay inside and therefore are subjected to more of me. (laughs) You're welcome. You're welcome. (laughs) Thank you, Corona, for that one blessing. Hey, like and subscribe us on YouTube.com slash TheDeepEndTV. Like and subscribe. Some of you, no matter how many times I say it, you still watch us on the Waters Church YouTube. Move over. Move over now, okay, to the Deep End TV YouTube page. Like it, subscribe, and click the notification bell so that you can get updates right to your smartphone device about when we are live. Every Tuesday night, uh, we are live with you. Welcome to the YouTube audience. Welcome to Facebook audience, Spotify, W-E-Z-E in Boston, FM 99.5 in Rhode Island, and uh, everybody here in studio. Hello, studio team. Good to see you guys. (laughs) Small, abbreviated team for social distancing Very small, purposes. Yes. So let's get to the Deep End News. We'll roll that. Deep End News. The news you'd choose if you could choose news. Did you, did you record that? Was that you? That was me. <laughs> the news you'd choose if you could choose news. I knew it sounded familiar. Pretty brilliant, does not it? Yes. So brilliant. Anyway, I'm a frustrated, uh, you know, voiceover artist. Do you have an account on Fiverr? <laughs> I should, shouldn't I? The news you'd choose if you could choose news. Okay. Time for my Corona COVID. I'm sorry. Yeah, my COVID commentary. We're gonna we're gonna call this a new segment of uh, the deep end COVID commentary, and I'm going to share my thoughts. They are not scientific, um, but they are researched, and uh, in some ways they are well thought out. We're five weeks in, and um, we're just kind of starting to get a feel for a lot of the things that we are experiencing. in This crisis are causing a lot of other crises, and and I think that that we've got to realize. That at the at the very base of this entire problem is this one problem: human beings are very good at getting scared. Like no one teaches us to get scared, right? We we just nat- it's a natural talent that we develop uh, over the course of our lives. I remember reading somewhere, I think it's in a Mark Batterson book, that the the human uh, a human being is born with two basic fears. The fear of um, loud noises and falling. You ever have one of those dreams where you're falling and you wake up like right before you hit the floor or whatever? Usually after right after my dad is chasing me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm either naked in the grocery store or falling. Those are my two nightmares. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a nightmare. Trust me. Anyway, it's a nightmare for everybody else in the grocery store too. <laughs> but anyway... Um, yeah, so we have two fears that we're born with, and then every other fear is developed, and it just, we just keep adding to our list of fears. Remember, it wasn't long ago when the Intercept magazine put this article out. 2.2 million people in the U.S. could die if coronavirus goes unchecked. That was, um, when is it on that, on that screen there? March 17th, yeah. March 17th, that was the news item. 2.2 million. And then ever since then, the, the projection has been going down, down, down. Now, when you watch the news, and let me just say something about news. News is complete garbage. I, it doesn't matter what, <laughs> what source Wholeheartedly you are looking <laughs> at. It is complete garbage. And um, it's just becoming uh, a running joke now uh, about how bad our news outlets are. When I watch the news, I get the feeling, and I, and I think I I, I have... A, a sort of a, a finger on the pulse here of, of what I see, but just in my pastoral concern for you, it seems as if the news outlets don't want things to get better. No. And you have to remember that they have a vested interest in keeping your attention, right? Yep. They want you to listen. They want you to tune in every day and find out how much worse it's going to get or it could Get that's disaster the disaster sells. Disaster sells. Yep. John Krasinski, God bless his heart from the office, has started a YouTube channel called Some Good News. I encourage you to go over there, subscribe, and like it after the after the deep end, of course. But he is doing a some good news uh, segment every week, and he has a special guest on and really cool show. But nonetheless, bad news sells. Good news doesn't. And I think that the we Americans, you gotta wake up to this. The more you uh, search this stuff out. The more you can, you know, kind of culture, acculturate yourself, inculturate yourself into a a fear driven mindset. We're really good at getting scared. And my chief concern of of our country, because I I'm a Christian, but I'm also a very proud American. I love being an American. I love this country. I thank God. I thank God for what this country is. The most notable blessing that this country provides is the separation of church and state. I'm a huge fan of that. I don't want a church. Uh, state-run church. I don't want the church uh, to dictate the state. I want those two, uh, you know, kingdoms to be separate. I think that the church operates best when there's freedom of religion, right? But I think we're losing our freedom. Uh, I think we're losing our ability to be Americans, and here's what I mean by that. Uh, Freedom inherently requires two two basic things. You have to take responsibility for yourself. You can't have freedom if you can't take responsibility for for yourself. And every parent knows this. The kid wants to drive a car. Okay, well, can you prove that you can take care of it? I'm not going to give you a car until I can see that you're going to be somewhat responsible, right? You don't give a child a sharp object until you know the child can handle it and take responsibility for it. Freedom requires an ability for you to take responsibility for yourself. And and then secondly, it requires you to absorb risk. Like you can't be free if you you can't absorb some measure of risk in your life. And what I see in this crisis is America is losing its soul in that we no longer wanna take responsibility for ourselves and we can't absorb risk. Life is a risk, my friends no matter what you think, it's a risk. Your heart could have a massive problem in an instant and you're dead. You are taking a risk every day. But what I see is because this crisis has created a a fear-mongering culture, uh, a worst-case scenario mantra, and also this search for who's going to fix the problem, who's going to solve the problem. Maybe the problem is just going to be the problem, and we have to bear up under the risk while valuing our freedom. Like In the old days of this country, and this is my libertarian self coming out, but in the old days of this country, we didn't look to government to give us things. Uh, the great Democrat president, uh, John F. Kennedy, famously said, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Yeah. What happened— to the Democratic Party, but more even so with the Republican Party. It seems like they both want to be our parents today. and the nanny state. Nanny state. And and it's becoming worse. I I don't know if you've seen the news that I've seen, but the the government wants to step on your toes uh, more so now than ever before, and you are getting a big dose of here is what government could have the capacity to do, such as arresting someone for going surfing which happened a couple of days ago. Uh, Arresting someone for um, walking on the sidewalk. Uh, Meanwhile, letting criminals out of prison, which I don't I don't understand. I don't understand how that mitigates the corona crisis. When when we're letting rapists and murderers out of the prisons and then we are arresting common, ordinary, decent citizens, something is wrong, and you need to start paying attention to the reality that when government takes a bigger portion of your life, it's rarely a good thing. Heaven sakes, we have the last century as proof positive um, from... Uh, F- uh, Fidel Castro's Cuba to Stalin's Russia to Hitler's Germany to prove that the more power you give the government, the less freedom you have. Wasn't it? Wasn't it Ben Franklin who said something about like, um, "Bad is the day when when we give up our own freedoms for a false sense of security." Or yeah, it was uh, either him or something. But quote. that's what made us as yeah. a country yeah. freedom. It was a tremendous risk for our founders to break away from the you know, the the English government. It was a tremendous risk, and they bore that risk. And if you ever do a study on the 55 signers of the Declaration of Independence, 52 of them lost almost everything to make this country happen. And now to see our generation, and especially this culture, just looking to the government, give us money, the stimulus. I mean, I know it might help some people, but I wonder what it's doing to our mindset. Um, where we become dependent upon government handouts, government stepping in, solving our problems, instead of just learning to bear up under the risks of being a human. Do I want people to die? Of course not. Do I want us to try to save as many people's lives as possible? Of course I do. But I wonder at what expense do we do those things? I'm going to give you a couple of examples of what I mean. 38,000 people die from car accidents every year in this country. 38,000 people, right? So there's 24,000 deaths from coronavirus in this country so far. I know. That's a large number in the short span of time, right? Three months in. Um, 38,000 for a year in in driving in car accidents. You know, uh, Michael Knowles makes this point. If you take the speed limit and you just reduce it down to 25 miles per hour, you basically eliminate uh, car accidents, (laughs) Right. Just do a nationwide speed limit, 25 miles an hour. How about don't even make cars that can go over 25 miles per hour. You basically eliminate deaths from car accidents forever. But we don't do that, do we? No. In some places in this country, there's 75, 80 mile per hour speed limits, especially in the south where there's wide open spaces. And why do we do that? It, there's a risk. Yes, that's called freedom. We don't do that. We don't limit people's freedom. We let people absorb some measure of risk. About 88,000 people in this country die every year from alcohol abuse. 88,000 people die every year from drinking too much. But there's still liquor stores. We don't shut down. Liquor. We tried to. That was called prohibition. Didn't go over well in this country. We tried to shut it down. Didn't work. We still have liquor stores all over. There's more liquor stores in many towns in America than there are churches. <laughs> Why? Why? Because of freedom. But alcohol kills. Yep. If you abuse it, it's going to kill you. That's right. That's called freedom. And your abuse of that freedom does not and should not impede my freedom to have that freedom. Now, I understand. Coronavirus is a different animal because it's attacking us as a virus, a living thing. It's not someone abusing themselves. But there are some studies that are being produced. Actually, every statistic that I look at anyway uh, reaffirms. The, um, the notion that most of the people that are dying are dying because they have pre-existing conditions or they're elderly. And so in, in that sense, there's a lesson for us there that to have freedom is to be able to abuse your body if you so choose, such as drinking alcohol, such as smoking, such as doing drugs like marijuana, which is being legalized. Um, but you're going to start creating physical handicaps for yourself. Um, such, let's, just, let's, not take, let's not take any kind of substance abuse. Let's just talk about not actually taking care of yourself, eating poorly, not exercising, not doing something physical, and just basically lying around all day watching television all day. That's unhealthy, but you have the freedom to do that. But now today people do that. They have these pre-existing conditions coming upon them, and many of the pre-existing conditions that I hear about are our, 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 our conditions that come upon us because of bad habits. People have heart disease today because of bad eating habits. We eat garbage in this country. We eat so true garbage, <laughs> and then we have heart attacks and heart problems. We wonder where is God when it hurts? You ate garbage. <laughs> you know what I'm the saying? vegan hippies do have a point. <laughs> you, you know, sometimes I, I look. People see um, celebrities die. I remember when George Michael died. Everybody's like, "Oh my gosh, how could this happen?" The guy claimed he had sex with a thousand different men that is unhealthy <laughs> he had the freedom to do it but he paid the consequence and his freedom to do that should not impede my ability to be myself and have my freedom again I'm getting more into you know political mantras and and, and diatribes here than pastoral diatribes but I do have a I do have a concern for our country and you're you know this is not from the word this is my thoughts so feel free to disagree but Uh, this is my belief. Freedom is essential to the human condition. It is what God said to Adam and Eve in the very beginning. The first words out of God's mouth to Adam and Eve are, you are free. You are free to eat any tree in the garden, except that one. Except that one. That's the only one. And so God is a big, big fan of freedom. You ever notice, Michael, how there's so few Detailed instructions in the Bible? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, you know, people always want detailed instructions. God doesn't, doesn't do that. He is not a micromanager. He provides guidelines. He provides guardrails. And even if you go outside the guardrails, He doesn't instantly smite thee. Like, He lets, <laughs> he lets you experience the, the costs of your freedom. And again, this is why my theological uh, invest, investigation informs my political views, Like, my political views are not influenced by uh, Democrats or Republicans. They're informed by the scriptures and how God operates. And and that's what brought our country about, too, is this idea that God has given us this gift of, you know, the the freedom to uh, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. These things that we are given by God, not by government. And yet, in the middle of the crisis, we are seeing an erosion of these things. I have a couple of... um, pictures i want to put up on the screen this is this is some projections of covid-19 deaths in the us how they compare to historic epidemics and seasonal flu so if you have it there leave it up full screen for me for a second you see the swine flu is on the far left that's 2009 12,000 deaths uh, the flu of 2018 19 34,000 deaths and then covid right now project this is projected the inner circle is 60,000 the outer circle is 240,000 so that's projected okay and again, the projections have gone from 2.2 million to 200,000 now down 240,000 now down to 60,000. Okay, whether that's because of social distancing or not, we don't know. We will find out. But then to the right, we have the flu of 2017-18, which sixty, which had 61,000 deaths, and then of course the Spanish flu H1N1 flu of uh, 1918, which was a horrible pandemic, 675,000 deaths. Of course, you know, if the projections are right, yes. It's somewhat of a serious problem, but it, but again, it's not this enormous, earth-shaking problem that we have seen in times past. And I think that that's important for us to have some perspective on this. And then I have this other one here, um, back to just poor life choices. You know, COVID nineteen deaths uh, compared to those from leading causes of death. So on the far right, you have a left, I'm sorry, you have suicide with 19,000 deaths per year. Drug overdose, 30,000. Alzheimer's disease kills 50,000. I didn't even know that. 50,000 people die yeah, yeah. from Alzheimer's disease. Then COVID again, 60 to 240. That's projected again. There's so far, 24,000 as of this recording, uh, reality. But 60 to 240,000 projected. Stroke kills. Um, strokes kill uh, 60,000 a year. And then cancer, 252,000, and heart disease, uh, 270,000. That's almost, uh, what is that? That's almost 600,000 deaths from cancer and heart disease every year. Mm -hmm. Many of those cancers and heart disease are from poor life choices. For instance, I go to the dermatologist to get my moles checked because I got moles everywhere. And the person will tell me on a regular basis, stay out of the sun. So if I go in the sun and I someday die of skin cancer, I'm at fault. That doesn't mean we should now keep you out of the sun. <laughs> All right, my, my freedom to do that to myself should be my freedom. I don't want to do that. But my point is, there's a, we're really, because we're really good at getting scared and we're looking for worst-case scenario constantly of what could happen, and I say this in a pastoral sense all the time. Like 90% of what you worry about never actually happens. 90% of everything you worry about never, ever happens. How many of you parents of young children, you worry about them breaking their leg, you worry about them getting stolen, you worry about them dying. They never, and they don't, right? 90%. Um, you worry about losing your job. You worry about your divorce. You worry about this, that doesn't happen. Okay, so look, get some perspective here pastorally from me for a second. Stop being so good at getting scared and start and and then wake up to the reality that the more the more we feed into our fears the more susceptible we are to the elimination of our freedoms amen yeah and that is what my pastoral concern is for this whole crisis that's my pastoral concern uh, here's here's the- <laughs> This is just as ridiculous as it gets. This is Dr. Anthony Fauci, who I am starting to get a little bit annoyed with. President Fauci? (laughs) Okay. Here's what he says a couple of days ago. I don't think we should ever shake hands again, to be honest with you. Not only would it be good to prevent coronavirus disease, it probably would decrease instances of influenza dramatically in this country. What on earth? (laughs) Never shake hands again. Now, I love doctors. We have doctors in our church. They are valuable. They are amazing people. Thank God for doctors. But can we just say just one little thing about doctors that's, that's typically true? Typically, they give us worst-case scenario news. Yeah, always. <laughs> like that's, I'm, and I'm not saying that as a negative of their character, okay? I'm not making a character attack. I'm just telling it like it is. And I'll be the first to say that there's a lot of preachers out there that give you worst-case scenario, right? Something like this happens. There's a lot of preachers out there saying, this is the end. Uh, the beast is going to rise out of uh, Eastern Europe tomorrow, 666. Watch out for the mark, blah, blah, blah. I mean, you know, right? So some <laughs> preachers are going to be like that. some Many doctors are like that. They give you worst-case scenario. And if I, had, if I had a dollar for every time someone told me that the doctor that they went to for their diagnosis gave them six months to live 10 years ago, I'd have... A good amount of dollars. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. My point is that, you know, we've got to be careful who we listen to. We've got to be careful about our souls and our spirits. We've got to be careful about what we let get in here because it does have an impact on what we get out here. I'm amazed at the political left in this country who so fights diligently for a woman's right and freedom to choose and yet they are willing to surrender their rights to protect themselves from coronavirus. I thought you were the party of freedom. I thought you were on the side of individual liberty. And now you're almost fighting for the erosion of elimination, uh, for the erosion of individual liberty. This, this is, this is um, problematic, and it will cause us all problems in the long run if we don't wake up to the reality that freedom is two things. It is the ability to take responsibility for yourself. It is the willingness. It is what made this country. The willingness to say, yep, I will live with freedom and not expect everybody or somebody to always bail me out of my potential problems. Secondly, I will, I will bear responsibility for the risks that I take. I will live with risk. That's life. Anyway, let me, let me turn the page here. And ask this question, what are you doing with all the free time you've been given? And this is, this is a great chance for you. It, it might be wearing on you. You can't go to work. You can't, you can't do your normal things. Okay, so what are you doing? Because with every problem, I, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in this. Whenever there's a difficulty, there's also an opportunity. There's always a, an opportunity in every difficulty, and I think in this difficulty, with all the time in your on your hands, you have an opportunity to make a personal investment in yourself. It could be as simple as just buying a, a Kindle book on your smartphone and just reading something you'd never would have read before. For instance, I'm reading through Eric Metaxas's uh, Bonhoeffer book, a brilliant book written by a written about a brilliant man, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who stood opposed to Nazi Germany uh, in the heat of the Second World War, and. Had every opportunity to um, run from the Nazi problem and hide in America. In fact, he was in America during the war, and because of his heart for the German people and the crisis that they faced, he went back into the lion's den, and was eventually uh, led first led a underground seminary for confessing church pastors who stood opposed to the Nazi regime in Germany and then eventually he was, uh, he was uh, imprisoned in Flossenburg and then executed, sadly, by the Nazis one month before the end of the war. Um, yeah, but his story, and I'm reading through this, and I'm just thinking about, and I'm seeing a lot of the parallels of Nazi Germany, uh, Germany, before the Nazis, experienced an existential crisis of who they were and the set in the First World War lost, and they didn't know who to turn to, and they looked for a solution, and there was Adolf Hitler ready to be the solution, and then before you knew it, the country was handing over their freedoms. Uh, some people, like Bill Maher, talks about how he hates this president so much he wishes for a recession so that there was an economic collapse and they can vote him out. And one of his commentators on the show said, "Why would you ever do that?" Dictators arise in the midst of a recession, in the midst of a crisis, not in the absence of them. You think he ever expected that it would actually happen? I don't know. <laughs> I wonder what he's thinking now. Actually, he has a great uh, commentary uh, <laughs> available on his uh, on his website I about I that. about the in, it, it, about the insane uh, not being able to call it the Chinese oh yeah I did I did or, say that. <laughs> originated <laughs> virus anyway. Bill Maher for the win. sometimes. yeah, <laughs> in, in one instance, he makes actually uh, some sense there, but nonetheless. What are you doing during this time? What What do you How are you, I, I would recommend you pick up a new hobby. I would recommend you read a book that you'd be longing to read. I recommend that you get on uh, the YouVersion Version Bible app on your phone and start reading through a reading plan, uh, or reading through a scripture uh, book of the of the book of the Bible. Do something that's going to pay dividends in this season. God often does this with his best servants. He brings them away from the regular life so that their regular life so that they can reinvest them into the world stronger and better on the other side. So you are in the wilderness right now. I'm there too. Let's invest ourselves. Let's get stronger in this midst of this, you know, pause season on life so that when God presses play again, we're stronger and better for it. And I think no matter what your political ideology is, you can agree with that. Invest in yourself so that you're stronger on the other end. Amen? Amen. And with that in mind, why don't we spend some time investing in ourselves and get to the Book of Acts. The Deep End with Tim Hatch is made possible by contributions from listeners and viewers like you. If you would like to partner with us to support this ministry, you can go to thedeepend.tv forward slash partner or on the Cash app with cash tag TheDeepEndTV. Okay, Acts chapter thirteen, and um, I just am so excited to share this chapter with you because it's such a powerful chapter, it's such a good chapter, it's so important to the church and understanding the church. And it brings me to one important caveat before we get into the text, and I want to make a distinction, and I want to make a distinction between the weekend services at our church or your church. And what the deep end is? The deep end is, bi- we, I call this classically, Bible study on your time. And I want to, imp- I want to kind of draw clarity around the difference between what you would experience at a weekend service, in the teaching of the Word of God, and what you experience through the deep end. The deep end's Bible study for information purposes. So it's not really Bible study for inspiration as much as information, because it should the Scriptures should inform our lives, so that we operate as Christians and as the Church according to the plan and purposes of God, in order that we might do what we do on the weekend, which is broadcast the gospel as clearly and as, as, as inspiringly as possible. So this is information. And why I say that today when we get to Acts 13 is because of this point. Acts 13 provides us a ton of great information about how God works in and through individuals in the church and where the church um the church gathering practice comes from. And it's just really cool. And so I've titled this talk, What Is the Church Here For? The Mission to the World Begins, Acts chapter 13. Let's get into the text. Verse one says this. Now that we're in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a long lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Okay. Acts 13 is a hinge point in the book of Acts. It's, like I said in the opener, it is Act 4, because Act 1 is Jerusalem, Act 2 is Judea. As the gospel goes from Jerusalem to Judea, their surrounding towns of Jerusalem, then it moves into uh, Samaria, that's Act 3, and that's Acts chapter 8 to 11. And now in Acts chapter 13, we are going to that fourth item in the list on Acts chapter 1, verse 8 to the end of the earth, or uttermost parts of the earth, depending on your Bible translation, Acts 1.8. So this is the beginning of that. And what we're going to see is the world mission of Paul starts here. But let's look at the, um, the uh, conception, if you will, of world mission in the church, because it's so important what happens here in Antioch. Remember, we are in Antioch in Acts chapter 13. Way back in Acts chapter 11, Antioch was booming the gospel was exploding. The church was growing. It was growing so fast that if you remember, that Barnabas had to go and get Saul, who, who had kind of relocated back home to Tarsus to kind of hide out because Hellenus wanted to kill him. And uh, Barnabas has to go get Saul and say, you know, come and help us. There's this huge mission. People are coming to Christ from all over the city. And remember, Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire at the time. So it's a key metropolitan area. And Barnabas goes and gets Saul, and he brings him in to teach and lead the people in the city of Antioch. And it will be from Antioch that the Christians, the Christian movement's most powerful expression of world missions begins. Now, I want to say something because it's so important to see it. The church in Antioch is exploding, and that is where missions begins. Which teaches us something incredibly important about the church the purpose of a growing church is that it would become a going church the purpose of a growing church is that it would become a going church what do i mean what do i mean by that it should be pretty self-explanatory but what i what i mean is that it should be that when we have a church experiencing growth and people are coming to Christ in large numbers We shouldn't just celebrate the fact that we're a big church. We should be engaged in raising up leaders to leave and go and plant other works. Now, this is kind of um, a problem for American Christianity because American Christianity has absorbed the consumerist mindset of the American culture wherein we go to whatever's big and happening. And so a lot of churches are swallowing up smaller churches or other Christians from other churches just because they have a better children's program or a better preacher or a better songwriter or whatever it is. And so there's this, this consumerist mindset where we have big churches, but many times those big churches are just the absorption of all these other churches in their area because the pastor's cooler, hipper, smaller, younger, bigger, younger, whatever, it doesn't matter. But for whatever reason, the consumer's mindset has done that to the American church. And Francis Chan, God bless his heart, uh, left the American culture, left America, went to Hong Kong. He wants to be a missionary to, I think, Malaysia, if that's over there, I forget where it is. Anyway, and he said this a couple of months ago, and it does, it does bear some truth to it in that, American churches are in many ways a bit of a game, and the game is have the best children's program, have the best hook on um, bait on the hook, and you will get the biggest fishes in the sea. And he said, "I got," he, he said himself, "I got weary of that, and it's kind of a game." And he's kind of right. The model, though, that we see in the scriptures is a gro- growing church like Antioch is sending a growing church should be a going church, a sending church. This is why I raise up leaders in our church, men to pastor their own churches, to go out and plant churches. I have another guy in our church. He's going through seminary right now. I have been instigating him to do this for years because I want him to go and start a church someday. Right? I want people to leave us for the sake of expanding the gospel. But there's some facts about the church in Antioch here in Acts 13, 1-3 that are so important for us to see. First off, they were spiritually well-equipped. Notice that it says there was a plurality. If we can put the verse back up on the screen, full screen. There was a plurality of... um, How did I do that? Let me go back. There was a plurality of pastors and teachers. This is not working. Come on, work. There we go. So prophets... Yeah, it's not working. I'm sorry, I was going to write this in, and it's not working. There we go, prophets and teachers. And that means that the church had spiritual growth to the extent that people were picking up on the prophetic gift and the teaching gift that comes from the ascended Christ, Ephesians 4.11. Secondly, notice that it was ethnically and geographically diverse. You have people from uh, like Lucius from Cyrene, which is northern Africa, you have Simeon, who is called Niger. He's probably from the area we now know as Nigeria, thus the name Niger. Uh, you have uh, Saul, who's from Tarsus in the north. You have Barnabas, who's from uh, Cyprus. You have all these areas that are part of the Antiochian church, and they will spread out. And I love that, because what it does is the geographical diversity within the church Um, actually makes the church more adept at reaching different people. Uh, A church should be geographically and ethnically diverse because it will reach a multitude of different kinds of people, right? And so this is beautiful. And I want you to notice, too, that uh, we have Simeon here who is called Niger. Niger is the Latin word for black. And And then Lucius of Cyrene, which is northern Africa. There's a good chance that two of the five guys listed here uh, are black, which is incredible because it's just inconceivable to me and obviously to you as well that the scriptures in this country over a hundred years ago were literally used to actually make black people less than people. like it's just proof positive that they didn't actually read the scriptures. they just made the scriptures what they wanted them to say. When you have in the in the key church for the mission of Jesus, two key, Members uh, of the uh, of of black color, and it's so important that we have an ethnically and a, and a geographically diverse church. I believe that helps the gospel go forward. But the third thing that I want you to see is that this church has a burden for mission because look what they were doing—they were worshiping the Lord and fasting and fasting, okay, and praying. Fasting and praying are. Um always practiced in the scriptures whenever there is a burden for the Lord to, to do something in their midst. That, that, uh, I think about the fasting of um, Esther when they needed the Lord to come through to save the Jewish people. Uh, we, we There's this great scripture in Matthew chapter 9 when Jesus and his disciples are kind of, you know, living it up and having a good time, and they come to him, and they say, hey, look, you know, the disciples of John, they they fasted all the time. Why don't you guys fast? And he says, He says, listen, they can't fast when the bridegroom is with them. Like when the bridegroom is no longer with them, then they will fast. And the point that Jesus is making is that when you don't feel the presence of the Lord, that's the time to fast. And so what you have here is a church that is burdened for more of God to do something, more of Jesus. In spite of their growth, they still want more of Jesus. And this is a big temptation. The bigger a church gets, the more successful it appears. And you can have a big church that's completely spiritually hollow. You gonna have a big church where God and, and the presence of the Lord is not even there, and they're just kind of riding the coattails of their success that got them to that to that place. I don't want that. I think that a church that gets big has to watch out for, are we just proud that we're big, or are we burdened for God to do something big through us? And that's what you have here. It's a beautiful picture of the church uh, in action here in Acts chapter 13. So let's move on. Verse 4, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Now, the, the key term here that I want you to see is they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. You say, well, didn't the church pray and lay hands? Yes, but it was the Holy Spirit that instigated this. Hear the heart of the Holy Spirit. The heart of the Holy Spirit is that we go. The heart of the Holy Spirit is that the church moves out which which kind of eliminates the idea that really all the Holy Spirit wants to do is give you the heebie-jeebies, you know, or <laughs> give you the sense, of, oh, wow, the, 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 the Holy Ghost goosebumps on your body or make you feel at peace. No, the Holy Spirit is interested in movement. The Holy Spirit is interested in seeing the church step out of its comfort zone, get uncomfortable for people who are uncomfortable in sin. And that's what you see here. And then it says that they sailed to Cyprus, and Cyprus is— A good question could be asked here. Why Cyprus? Well, there's a very simple answer to that. You know why Cyprus? It's Paul and Barnabas. It's because Barnabas is from Cyprus. And I love this because the Holy Spirit sends them out, but it doesn't tell them where to go. Again, no detailed instructions in the Bible. So they decide to go to Cyprus. And I think that Paul and Barnabas had this conversation and said, where should we go? I don't know. Where do you think we should go? Barnabas was like, well, I'm from Cyprus and they need Jesus. All right, let's go there. Like sometimes we don't get detailed instructions from God. And sometimes we just have to use our natural human relationships to lead us where we should go. I'm a lifelong New Englander. Here I am pastoring a church in New England. And believe me, this weather does not suit me. But I am. I am a lifelong New Englander. And I know God has me here because I am a lifelong New Englander. I love—I hate New England weather. I love New England people. They are awesome. They are the coolest people on the planet, in my opinion. And I know how to relate to them. And so God uses people from certain areas. And so here's what you need to ask about for yourself— Where has God brought me? What has God given me? What has God put in my life naturally that I should look to to say he's leading me in that direction? This can have, uh, it has everything to do with your talents, your skills, your giftings, your college, your job, but it also has everything to do with your personal evangelism mission, like to be a personal evangelist. Who is your neighbor? Do you know their name? Um, do, who, who are you in association with? Have you invited them to church? They're not in your life by accident. Who are the people that you are relating to naturally? It is absolutely entirely possible that God has you in that person's life naturally relating to them so that you can supernaturally bring them to Christ. It's so important that we look at the, both the this call of God and then the natural order of our lives, the natural conditions. Moving on. Verse five. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue to the Jews, Synagogues of the Jews, and they had uh, John to assist them. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Okay. Uh, another mention here of human relationships working in tandem with the leading of the Spirit is the fact that they had John to assist them. Why did they have John to assist? Why did they take John? Do you know why? because John was Barnabas's cousin. <laughs> I mean, it's not hard to see that there's a dual aspect to gospel mission, the supernatural leading, and then the natural pathways that God opens up. Let me address something that comes up in some churches. Uh, a, a pastor will raise up his son to be his successor, and some people cry, nepotism, oh, that's bad, this should be open to everybody. Why? Why? First off, that son is his pride and joy. Secondly, if the son wants to serve Jesus in that capacity, shouldn't the church just rather celebrate that? That's a beautiful thing. And and by the way, it's hard to be a pastor and to have people that you can trust, okay? I know this from experience. So to have a son who loves the church enough to take over, you should celebrate that. It's not a bad thing for the pastor to use natural relationships in conjunction with the leading of the Holy Spirit in pastoring and leading the church, does it always happen? No. Is the you know you got to see if the pa- if the son loves Jesus. Obviously the son doesn't want to love Jesus. You don't want him to be the pastor of the church. But when that is a possibility, we should encourage that. We should see it. why because it's biblical. It's entirely biblical. The reason why John Mark is on this pa- uh, on this mission trip is because he's Barnabas's cousin. Period. End of story. Anyway, so they run into this guy. He's a false a Jewish false prophet named Bar Jesus. A couple of things about his name. Bar-Jesus literally means son of Jesus. Whenever you see Bar in Scripture, it's son of. So like when Jesus rebukes Simon, he says, Simon Bar-Jonah, right? Or actually he praises him. He says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of John. Simon, son of John. So this guy's name is son of Jesus. Now there's two options as to who what this guy is doing with the name Bar-Jesus. The natural option, which is he's just a guy who was born of a guy, you know, his father was named Jesus. Jesus is a very common name. In the first century, it was the uh, Greek transliteration of the Hebrew Joshua, Yeshua. Very common name uh, in first century Israel. So it's a good chance that he had been just the son of a guy named uh, Yeshua, or Jesus, in Greek. But there's another chance, and I kind of think it's this one, that when you there was also a uh, custom in those days that whenever you called yourself bar someone, you were saying, I was a follower of that person. And notice that the text tells us he was a Jewish false prophet, and false prophet refers often, actually usually, in the New Testament to people who are Christians, or not Christians spiritually, but Christians in name, but they're false teachers, they're false prophets, and we should be on our guard against these people. So there's a good chance that this guy was using or leveraging the name Jesus, which had become popular in the Roman world at the time because of the growth of the Christian church, to manipulate this guy Sergius Paulus and to make a lot of money for himself because Sergius Paulus is the proconsul; council a very important role on Uh, the island of Cyprus. The point I'm making is uh, that this guy, Bar-Jesus, has a lot to lose when Paul and Barnabas, or Barnabas and Saul, come to preach the gospel. I'm going to show you how. Watch this. Verse 8. But Ilimas, the magician, again, his name is Bar-Jesus, but he called himself Ilimas because Ilimas literally means sorcerer in Hebrew. Ilimus, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So, Ilimus is a sorcerer, but sorcerers in Hebrew are typically astrologers. They look to the stars, they look to the sun to find meaning, wisdom, and then they give advice. And if you can really score yourself this great position like this guy had, he was an assistant to Sergius Paulus, you know, you can make a lot of money. You can make a lot of money by pretending to be this shaman, this this wise man who sees the stars and says, okay, make this decision, not that decision, you know, and he kind of leads that person. Well, here's the thing. The gospel comes in, and the gospel starts to open the eyes of the people. And guess what the gospel does? This is the beautiful thing about the gospel. It connects us to the wisdom of God. When we receive Christ, we have access to the wisdom of God, which means we don't need the wisdom of men. Right? Now, does God give us pastors, teachers, and elders, and shepherds? Yes, but the gospel poses a threat to spiritual gurus in every culture because spiritual gurus have a lot to gain by being spiritual gurus. Okay? Watch out for people who love to sell spiritual books. I'm amazed at how many Christians fall for spiritual nonsense in books simply because they are bestsellers and Oprah Winfrey recommends them. I mean, watch out for what you are ingesting spiritually. And because here's the thing, you as a Christian, if you're in Christ, you are connected to your Father. You have the Holy Spirit living in you. And remember James 1.5 says, if you lack wisdom, ask God who gives generously. It doesn't say, if you ask wisdom, turn to a guru. It doesn't say, if you, if you lack wisdom, read a book. If you, ask wiz, if you need wisdom, ask God, he'll give it to you. And that poses a huge threat to spiritual gurus. Christians should be the last people on the face of the earth who need spiritual gurus. Why? Because we have the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity living in us, guiding us. Now you say, well, how do I listen to the Holy Spirit? You listen to the Holy Spirit through prayer, through silence and letting him speak to you through the word of God, through your spiritual leaders in your local church, right? I I really get worried when people come to the church leadership with um, external authorities, you know, uh, spiritual advice from external sources outside of the local church. And then they, they come and they say, Pastor, here's what I found in this book, but what do you say? And then they listen sometimes to the guy with the, with the book or the big notable name instead of their spiritual leaders that God has given them in their context, in their community. We've got to learn to listen to the Holy Spirit through the church and through the life of the community the church over the wisdom and the nonsense, in many respects, of the world. So this guy, Elamus, he has a lot to lose. And so he, he tries to turn the pro away from the faith. Look at the can that Saul opens up on this guy. Because it's beautiful. He says this in verse 9. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil. Man. Oh, I love Saul. First off, his name was Elimus, and he also called himself Bar-Jesus, which means son of Jesus. And I love how Paul uses the play on words here and says, you're not you're not the son of Jesus. You're the son of the devil. And he says, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the, path, the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately... Mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. So this guy who wants to claim to be this great spiritual guru and leader is now blinded. Remember, he was an astrologer. Paul, Saul at this point, um, basically curses this guy. And the curse happens. He becomes blind. And I think that you can look at it and say, wow, that's a very negative thing that, that Paul does here. But it's not, because if you think about it, he is now blinded to the sun and the stars from which he gains wisdom, and perhaps the Lord is using this curse so that he has a chance to stop looking to those things for wisdom and start to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like Even in this curse, God is, in gracious, God is graciously cutting off the sources of his own um, ignorance and, uh, and false hopes. But anyway, a couple of things from the text I want to show you. First, notice that this is the first time it says, Saul, who was called Paul. So Paul is now his name. Why? Well, very strategic move here by Paul because Paul is is Paul's Roman name. Saul is his Jewish or Hebrew name. And so he starts to change his name to a Roman name. He adopts a Roman name. Why? Because he is reaching Roman and Greek-influenced people. He is reaching Gentiles now, and he wants to be ready for them. He wants to change what he can change about himself to be ready to reach people who are different than himself. He says it very famously in 1 Corinthians 9 when he talks about, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant of all that I might win them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew. To those under the law, as one under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. What is he saying? I did all this. I made all the concessions possible that I could without compromising the message to make sure that I could connect with the person that I was trying to reach with the message. And that is a key aspect to Paul's missionary mindset. What can we compromise what can we change about us to make the message of Jesus clearer to people who are unlike us? Never, me- never compromising the message, but, but making compromises for the sake of people far from God. And, and that's what Paul does here. Secondly, he performs an apostolic miracle. Because this miracle is right up there with killing Ananias and Sapphira, as Peter did in Acts chapter 5. It's right up there when Peter rebukes Simon the magician in Acts chapter 8. And we have a sign of the apostle. And Paul talks about signs of the apostle in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, when he says the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. He's talking about these signs that I performed were not ordinary, average signs. They were signs of an apostle. And this moment when he rebukes Elemas, or Bar Jesus, and causes him to be blind, does something powerful. First, verse 12 says this. The pro believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. But then notice this. The very next verse says this, verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. For the first time in the book of Acts, the phrase Paul and his companions is made, is, is stated. Up until this point, it had been Barnabas and Saul, intentionally. Luke is saying that Barnabas was the lead and Saul was the guy following. And you got to remember that Barnabas is the one that reached out to Saul originally. He's the one that introduced him to the apostles. He's the one that went and got him in Tarsus when he was in the middle of no man's land and brought him into Antioch to help teach and preach the gospel to this growing church Up until this point, it had been Barnabas and Saul. Now and from this point forward, in the book of Acts, it goes to, it turns to Paul and his companions. I am pressing in on this because it's a huge lesson about church and the Holy Spirit and gifting for leadership. The Lord is in charge of who he gifts, who he calls to lead, and who he establishes as the lead role in the community. It is not always by a human pecking order that God establishes leadership. If it was a human pecking order, Barnabas would forever be in charge of Paul or Saul. But it doesn't happen that way, does it? Now Paul becomes a leader. He's got the apostolic gift. He's the one that curses Ilimus and sees him become blind. And this is recognized by Luke in the text and then also by Barnabas because Barnabas does follow Saul, for Paul, for quite some time. And this is an important lesson for the church. God can raise up leaders from whoever he wants. And sometimes the person who is younger in the faith does end up leading the person who is older in the faith. God does not work according to human pecking orders all the time. Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. He has his free and sovereign choice as to who he elects and who he gives and who he equips. The, th- the second lesson I want to take from Paul's uh, apostolic calling here is this. He had been on the shelf for uh, 12 years. Like, he had been out of the picture. It- it's short in the text, but it's actually long in terms of time uh, from when he had to escape back to Tarsus to now in Antioch. 12 years of being on the shelf, which is a great pastoral lesson for you. Sometimes you're on the shelf in life, and you feel like God has forgotten you or left you or there's nothing left for you to do. And that's just not true. Paul is probably in his mid to late 40s by this time. And now, mid to late 40s, now he's getting the opportunity to be one of the key components of the gospel mission. It's never too late for God to use you. For heaven's sakes, Abram was 100 years old when Isaac was born. Okay, <laughs> so Moses was 80 years old when we went back to Egypt to, to rescue the Israelites. So God does not work by human pecking orders, and he doesn't operate by uh, ideal uh, human conditions in terms of age and life's peaks. Sometimes pastoral search committees are dead wrong when they're looking for that guy who's 35 to 45, right in the prime of his life, to be our pastor. Maybe they're actually closing the doors to what God wants to do. Maybe a good older pastor is good for them. Maybe a younger guy is good for them. What I'm saying is, It is God's prerogative who he raises up, and we've got to look out for the gifts and the clear signs of leadership in the church. Anyway, i got to get going or we'll never finish. Look what it says here. They came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them. Why did John leave them? I don't know, but it became a huge bone of contention for Paul. Maybe John left them because he saw that Paul was now in charge and his cousin Barnabas wasn't. I don't know, but I do know this. It would become such a bone of contention that later on, Barnabas and Saul, Paul, will separate from each other over John Mark's departure here. And that gives us a little insight into the early church, too, which I kind of like. They had their issues. (laughs) They weren't always working um, in total harmony and perfect peace. Like, they had arguments. They had disagreements. And the church still does today. And just because we have disagreements doesn't mean that we're sinning, right? Just because we go our separate ways doesn't mean that we're sinning. This is just natural human issues, Can't agree with everybody all the time. That's impossible. Anyway, verse 14. They went on from Bergen and came to Antioch in Pisidia. This is a different Antioch. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue. I'm just going to talk about that in a moment. And sat down. And after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, uh, say it. So they um, have an opportunity here. Paul's going to have an opportunity to preach uh, to this group of people. And it brings me to an important note, and I think we're going to stop at this point in the text, about the synagogue. Uh, the Jewish synagogue is an incredibly important component to uh, salvation's history, the church history. Uh, the synagogue is not the temple. The temple was, there was one temple in one city, in one locale in the world, according to the Jewish religion. And and this is what they pray for and and, and wail for at the Wailing Wall to this day, the restoration of the temple in Jerusalem. So the temple was always supposed to be in Jerusalem, never supposed to move, but the Jews had to move. They they were captive to the Babylonians, then to uh, the Persians, then to the Greeks, now to the Romans. And because of this, they had to scatter across the known world. And so what they did was they established synagogues Synagogues are gathering places. They still have them to this day, right? But they were gathering places that allowed Jews to come together in local in local cities, local towns, and worship the God of Abraham uh, and read from the Scriptures and to encourage each other. And what you have to understand is that these synagogues, that though God allowed his people to be scattered all over the known world, now we're going to see from this part on in the book of Acts onward, now we're going to see how God is actually going to use what was perhaps a very negative experience for the Jews, now, it's gonna, now God's going to use that to start creating churches wherever these synagogues are because that is the natural relational structure through which Paul will bring the gospel into the uttermost parts of the earth. So let me just show you a couple of things about synagogues. They basically were a, a pre-church picture of the church gathering that you experience today on Sunday. When they came together on Sabbath in a synagogue, they would read from the scriptures, They would sing songs, and they would pray for each other, and then they would share common meals. They didn't have animal sacrifices, because you only sacrificed in the temple in Jerusalem. And they would handle their own internal disputes, money raising, care for the poor, uh, and their vision of belonging to a worldwide community of the people of God. They also had elders and overseers. This was the, and and what you have to understand is, the synagogue becomes the pre- church picture of the church gathering. What do we do today on the church gathering on Sunday? We come together, we read from the scriptures, we sing, we pray, we hear a word of encouragement, and we have officers and elders and leaders. And it's a beautiful picture because here's what you see. God is using something that was not ideal for the Jewish people to be scattered across the world, not to be in Jerusalem, not to be able to come to Jerusalem, not to be able to worship in the temple every day, not to be in the promised land, but across the known lands. And now God is going to use Paul to go from synagogue to synagogue to preach Christ from the scriptures and show people that Jesus is the fulfillment of the scriptures. It's just a beautiful picture. I think we do have time. Let's just continue. Shall we continue? Let's continue. Okay. So, verse 16 says this. So, Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted hand, arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. I love that. (laughs) He put up with them. Oh, he did. He had to put up with them. Anyway, What you're gonna see, this is Paul's first sermon in the book of Acts, and here's the deal. It is all about what God did in his ancient people and ultimately in Jesus. And this is so important. Again, why do we study the Bible? So that we can understand how the church ought to be in the world as it proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what you are seeing here in the book of Acts is a pattern that is laid down for all generations. Good preaching Good Bible instruction starts with what God has done for us. And it does that way before it ever gets to what you now need to do for God please hear what I'm saying because so much of uh, sermons, so much of church, so much of Christianity today is about what we need to do, about how we can overcome, about how awesome we can be, if we just believe, if we just have faith and and that's there's a place for that, but it must be responsive to what God has already done for us in Christ Jesus. And so what you see here is Paul getting up and he's saying, look, This is our story. And he goes on. He says, After destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, verse 19, he gave them uh, their land as an inheritance. And this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges and Samuel, the prophet. And then they asked for a king, verse 21. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Look at the text. Look what what the sermon is about. It's about God did this. God did that. God did this. God did that. And he is relating to those people who would have been very familiar with these scriptures because they were Jews. This was their holy book he's rehearsing to them. And then he's going to tie it to how all those stories are really about Jesus. So he gets to Jesus in verse 24, And he says this, before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? Am I he? No. But behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, of the Old Testament Scriptures. So important that we get this. Because, again, so much Christian preaching centers on what you need to do when it's really not about what you need to do. It's about what God has done for you. So this past weekend at our Easter services, I preached a message from Luke chapter 24 on how Jesus walked that seven-mile journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus with the two men to unpack from Moses and all the prophets all the scriptures concerning who? Himself. And there's this beautiful picture. By the end of that two-hour, seven-mile walk, the scripture says that those two men literally begged Jesus to stay with them. And then they talked about how their hearts burned as he unfolded the scriptures. And I and I took our church through this, that Jesus is the true Joseph who was rejected by his brothers. The true Moses who was rejected by the people of Israel and Egypt. The true Samuel who was ultimately rejected in favor of a king. The true David who was rejected by his brothers. The true Daniel who was rejected by his companions. Jesus is the true hero who is rejected by those he came to save. Man, the Bible comes alive when you see that. When Jesus is on every page, the Bible comes up and your heart burns. And then you realize, oh, that's what those stories are all about. And so this is what Paul does in Acts chapter 13. That's good preaching, talking about Jesus. And look what he says. This is so, this, and look what happens in verse 32. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as it is also written in the second Psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken of it in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Moving on. Therefore, he also says in another Psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. He's just interpreting again more Psalms. It's all about Jesus. All the texts of the Old Testament, all about Jesus. Verse 36. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Now, it's all about Jesus, right? It's all about Jesus. And then he warns them, don't do what they did. Verse 40, beware therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers and be astounded and perish for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. And so basically that's the end of the sermon. And now watch the response. As they went out, I love this. The people begged that these things might be told them on the next Sabbath. That is a powerful moment. Just consider, when was the last time um, in your church the pastor got done speaking and the people were like, please tell us this again next week? (laughs) (laughs) You know, they begged. The same word is used of the men on the road to Emmaus. They begged him to spend the night with them because of the conversation they just had as he unpacked the scriptures and showed himself in the pages of the Old Testament. Remember, Paul did not have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to turn to. He had to go to Isaiah and Psalms and Deuteronomy and all the Old Testament scriptures. It's, it's, It's important that we get a hold of this. Good preaching and teaching of the word gets to Jesus, teaches people that he is the true hero who saves us from our true enemy and redeems us in spite of us and apart from us and without any help from us. We are the rescued. He is the rescuer. And that is good news. That's good news. You see, that's why they begged. We want to hear this again. Tell us about how Jesus is the true David the true Joseph, the true Moses. Tell us. In verse 43, and after meeting the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Jerusalem followed Paul. There's a big response in Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, look at this, the next Sabbath. You want to know how to grow a church? Here's how you grow a church. Talk about Jesus. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. That That is church growth right there when you can get the whole city to come out. So, verse uh, forty-five. Of course, whenever this is a theme in the book of Acts, whenever there's good, there's bad. Whenever there's advancement, there's also animosity. So, verse forty-five says, "When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul." Now, the Jews are, you know, they represent that older brother in the prodigal son story. They just, they just don't want to see the younger brothers come to save, come to, come to, come to, come back into the family. They feel like they've earned, you know, some kind of notoriety because of their righteous behavior. And in every church in America, there are older brothers in every church in america there are older brothers who think that those people they shouldn't be they shouldn't be in our church because they're not, they're dirty they shouldn't no 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 they they got to earn the right to be here that's nonsense that's religion that's not the gospel i remember having a conversation i ran into somebody from our church i was shocked by this conversation and this person had been coming to our church for years and then i met their spouse in the and i didn't even know this person was married i met the spouse and i was like why why hasn't this person invited you i don't even want to say which gender was which I said, why hasn't this person invited you to church? And, and the person that hadn't been to our church said, well, they don't want me to go. I said, I turned to him and I said, what are you talking about? You don't want them to go. Are you nuts? It actually infuriated me. Like, why, why wouldn't you want that, your spouse to come? Because there's an older brother mindset. This is my place. They don't belong here. Man, God save us from that. That's, that's just, uh, that's, that's apostasy in my opinion. Anyway. The Jews were jealous, and Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary the word of God be spoken to you first. Why? Why to the Jews first? Because God came for the Jews first, raised up the Jews, promised the Jews to be with them. So he is sending the message to the Jews first because God is faithful to his promises. And then it says, this, Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy for eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. So, the wor- so uh, For so the Lord commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Uh, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. See, what what's happening here? It's coming full circle. Remember how I started this talk, talking about Antioch was a growing, burgeoning church. And the reason, the purpose of a growing church is that I might become a going church. Not just to gather a group of people and say, look at how big we are, how special we are, but to go and send people out. Well, remember, that was God's original call on Israel. That's what he says here. He quotes from Isaiah 42 when he says, I have made you a light for the Gentiles. The, the reason why God blessed Israel was so that Israel would bring the message of God's goodness to the world. But what happened in the Old Testament, and all you can do is read it, is that they just kept chasing the ways of the world. They just kept trying to be like the nations around them instead of, instead of loving and appreciating and living out their God-given identity as God's chosen people. So when they reject that, that blessing and that purpose comes upon the church. That calling comes upon the church. It is now our job not to gather people around us just for the sake of being big, but to be the light for our community. Verse 49. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, but the the Jews incited devout women of high standing and leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So there's good and there's bad. And here's a very important key. When a church is effective in a community, there will always be those who hate it. <laughs> uh, you, you probably see that more and more in our country as, as, as this country gets more and more secular. Um, I think about the backlash that uh, Samaritan's Purse faced from Mayor Bill de Blasio in New York City uh, because they, were, they had the audacity uh, to be evangelical Bible-believing Christians and yet serve the people uh, of New York City with hospital beds and uh, nursing and and healthcare free of charge. By the way, free of charge because why? They're the church and Mary Bill De Blasio was concerned why? Because they might be what anti what LGBT? Why? Because they hold a biblical uh, view on marriage, and so now somehow people who hold a biblical view on marriage are now the suspected enemy. This is the world in which we live. It's no different than the world of the Bible. It's always going to be the case. In a world that hates God, those that love God and serve God will be hated by the world. But we still do good. We still go out there and we do good so that men might see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. And that's what you have here. They shake off their, the dust from their feet. That's straight from Jesus. If they don't listen to you, shake off the dust and move on. And that's exactly what they do here. And the mission of Jesus has just begun. And it's a beautiful, beautiful picture of what the church is about. The church has inherited the birthright of Israel to be a light to the nations. So I finish with this last and final main point. The calling, the gifts, and the blessing of God upon his people are for the advancement of his message to those not yet his people. The calling that you have, the gifts that you have, the blessing that you have, they are not ultimately for you. They are meant to go through you so that you can help us Help the church, be the church, and bring the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who are not yet in the church. I hope this has helped. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I know it's a little bit long, but I think it was worth it. I had a long diatribe there about COVID-19 in the early beginning. So nonetheless, got to the Bible, got through the book of Acts chapter 13, and I encourage you once again, please subscribe at youtube.com slash the deep TV. YouTube.com slash the deep TV. Keep subscribing there. And I look forward to seeing you right here next Tuesday night on The Deep End. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Deep End. We pray it helps you grow in your faith and your walk with Christ. If you don't already have a home church, we invite you to come out to one of our campuses this weekend. Check us out at waterschurch.org to find a location near you and a service time that fits your schedule. Make sure to stay tuned for next week's episode of The Deep End with Tim Hatch.